Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today we have on the program, Dr. Leighton Flowers. Dr. Leighton Flowers, welcome to the program. Thanks, Chris. Honored to be with you. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your work, what you do? Sure. Um, I was, I guess, a pastor in the church, a local church for about 10 years, and then I became the director of evangelism, youth evangelism. Um, director of Super Summer, Youth Evangelism Conferences, See at the Pole, those kinds of ministries um, for, for, uh, until about, I guess, two, three years ago. Uh, it was about 13 years I was a director of youth evangelism, and then I became the director of personal evangelism and apologetics. And in that ministry, we uh, coordinate apologetic conferences all across the state of Texas. We train people in four-by-four clinics and other uh, personal evangelism um, uh methodologies and ways to reach uh, the lost. Um, and more specifically to, I think, one of the reasons that I was invited on this podcast is my work in soteriology. Uh, I happen to do my dissertation on soteriology with regard to Calvinism and the Southern Baptist Convention and started a podcast a couple of years ago that has grown in uh, popularity because I'm, I guess, one of the few uh, from the traditional perspective that is uh, out there in kind of getting the word out about our particular theological worldview. And, um, and so that, that's, uh, it's been a fun journey. Uh, it, I've, I've learned a lot in the process, but it's, it's been something that has been good for me uh, to really challenge me to go deeper into uh, sociological studies as well. And, I, and I've learned a lot over the last couple of years doing this. Yeah, I like that word that you use. Uh, you're a traditionalist. And a lot of people They'll, they'll say, Dr. Leighton Flowers is an Arminian, and I've, I've been on threads with you on Facebook in which you correct them. You're like, no, I'm not really an Arminian. In fact, I've got kicked out of what, the Arminian Society, the Society <laughs> of Evangelical Arminians or something like that. And uh, can you just kind of explain to us the difference between Calvinism, Arminianism, and traditionalism? Sure, yeah. Um, now, that may take a little longer than you want to take to get into all the nuances and differences, but there, there are some basic um, core distinctions between uh, the three different groups. Now, when I say traditional, um, uh, un that's an unfortunate title uh, in, my, in my estimation, just like some Calvinists don't like the, the label Calvinist because they don't agree with everything John Calvin said. Well, in the same way, I, I don't necessarily like the label traditionalist. It just, it's just what's stuck. And if the leading scholars are using that term, you're kind of stuck using it. I, I've offered other names like provisionalism and things like that that I would prefer, but it, it is what it is. But it's really referring to the most popular theological, sociological position um, of Southern Baptist over the last uh, probably 100 years or so. And so it's not trying to say that uh, Southern Baptist started um, as being, you know, purely, uh, you know, sociologically like we are affirming libertarian free will. Uh, matter of fact, a lot of the early Cal uh, early uh, Southern Baptists were Calvinistic, um, and we acknowledge that, and that that's not that's not why we call ourselves traditionalists. But I always point to Calvinists and say, well, if that's an issue for you, then we can always be referring to the tradition of the church because the early church fathers clearly taught libertarian free will for the first 400 years until Augustine. And so if, if, if it's a real hang-up for people because, you know, Southern Baptists didn't start as traditionalists, then we can always refer back to the tradition of the early church fathers, which again, that's a debated subject as well. But that's that's the reason that the label has stuck. Um, but the difference is sociologically, again, this is re reducing it down to the bare minimum here because there's quite a bit of information you could go over. But basically, both Calvinists and Arminians 
tend to be more individualized in their soteriology. They tend to talk about the individual being predestined, the individual, whether it's foreseen faith, where God's looking through the quarters of time to foresee an individual's faith. Um, and again, I say they tend to be because I know of some Armenians like Branabashano, who tends to be more of a corporate perspective guy. Um, and so you have some crossover in some of these views, but traditionalists more are, are corporate um, tend to focus more on a corporate view of election or an election to service view. And, uh, and the major point of difference, I think what probably got me kicked out of the, uh, the society of evangelical Armenians, and it wasn't a, a, a bad kick out. I mean, like they weren't being mean to me. It's just that I didn't hold to the tenets that they, they affirm. And that really has to do with the concept of total inability um, that mankind is born in this condition because of the fall that they're incapable of responding willingly to God's own appeals to be reconciled from that fall and that God has to do some extra work of grace to make his already gracious work work. And so the, the sending of the gospel wasn't enough. The sending of the Holy spirit to bring down conviction wasn't enough. The, the sending of all of these things that God has done uh, through revelation wasn't sufficient. Um, you have to have some prevenient working of grace within Arminianism, or you have to have some effectual work of grace within Calvinism. And, and my, my position is, no, you, you have the gospel. You have the Holy Spirit making himself known through revelation. That is his, quote unquote, prevenient grace. Now, again, some Arminians are fine with that explanation and don't make a big distinction about it. Others call it um, a form of semi-Pelagianism or something like that, and and they slap that label, and so it becomes uh, pretty contentious because they they see that as heresy or outside of orthodoxy, and and it goes you can go back and forth with that for quite some time. But the the big hinge issue is the concept of total inability, which has been one of the major focuses of my podcast, just simply because I think that's the Achilles heel of that entire Western systematic. Um, and it's interesting when you study Eastern Orthodoxy even though it has a lot of its own theological problems, one of the issues that doesn't exist in Eastern Orthodoxy is the issue of Calvinism. I mean, they don't, they don't have that debate. And it's really strange. Why, why don't they have that debate? Well, they don't tend to think about um, individuals. They think about groups or, or corporate from a more corporate perspective. And so they're less likely to fall into that error of thinking everything's about me, I, my, and see it instead as more of our, like the Jews versus the Gentiles groups corporately. And when you understand it that way, those, those texts are less likely to be misinterpreted that have to do with election and uh, predestination, those kinds of things. All right. I, I would say that you are maybe perhaps the most famous Calvinist critic out there. I mean, you, and you take a lot of abuse for it. Calvinists, they tend not to be nice people in my experience. You, you, you'll find the nice people, but they're not the vocal ones. They kind of let the vocal ones take precedence. And uh, it's strange. I mean, I watch your interactions and you're a nice guy and you just per, uh, you, you were in this debate with uh, Dr. Zacharyides. We like to call him Dr. Zoidberg here on this program. And uh, he is just vicious and mean and ungracious. And, and you, you show a lot of restraint in that video. You're, you're very nice in responding. Even when you're, when you're getting frustrated, I, I could tell that you're, you're holding back. You, you have a lot of restraint. And these guys just treat you like dirt. Another instance that I could think of off the top of my hand is uh, Bible thumping wingnuts who are just spreading outright lies about you and then calling you a fork-tongued viper. And I stepped in. I said, this is not true. And then I explained why it's not true. And they just doubled down. It's just 
So you take a lot of hate and vitriol. So my question to you, how common is this in your experience? Is this systematic in Calvinism? And are there a lot of milder Calvinists that you interact with who, who don't, don't, aren't, as, uh, aren't as mean, but they're afraid to speak up? Yeah, I think, I think the majority of Calvinists that, that I'm aware of and that I know of, especially in person, because, you know, before the Internet became so popular and, and I was a non-Calvinist for quite some time before the Internet, you know, really was as popular as it is. And so I engage with a lot of Calvinists in person. And most of them are just as you know cordial and and kind as anybody else that you would know, um, and of course there's there's lack of cordiality on both sides of this particular discussion, and that's unfortunate. I, I think it, it flies in the face of what we're taught throughout the scriptures and how we should treat each other. Um, and you know, is is it systemic within Calvinism? You know, is this something that you know that they themselves you know it, it, like every one of them has to be this way because of the system itself? No, I don't think so. I, I think it, you know they they believe in the doctrines, what they call the doctrines of grace. So it does make sense that they would be gracious, especially given their systematic. They believe that in order for me to understand Calvinism and to accept Calvinism, God has to choose for me to do so. In other words, God has to open my eyes to Calvinism, and therefore, if my eyes are somehow closed to Calvinism, it's because for whatever reason God is, you know, predetermined it to be that way. And so, for a Calvinist, consistently. It seems to me that they would be a lot more patient thinking to themselves, well, when, when God wants them to come along, he'll bring them. And so I just need to be patient and I need to be kind to them and, and try to show them the truth. That, that seems to me to be a more consistent Calvinistic response. Um, but, you know, some leading Calvinists have addressed this issue. I mean, it's obvious. It's obviously an issue because they even got a name for it called cage stage Calvinism. And a lot of Calvinists out there, leading Calvinists, warn about you know, cage stagers and people who are acting real abruptly and and angrily towards those who disagree with them. I remember there was a, a podcast uh, called Why Are Calvinists So Angry or Negative, I think it was, that uh, John Piper did. And uh, and he and he said this, he, he says, well, I love the doctrines of grace, but he says, I think in there, in, in there's an attractiveness about them to some people in large matter because of their intellectual rigor they are powerfully coherent doctrines, Piper speaking, and certainly kind, uh, the kind of minds that are drawn to that, those kinds of minds tend to be argumentative. So the intellectual appeal of the system of Calvinism draws a certain kind of intellectual person, and that type of person tends, to be the tends not to be the most warm, fuzzy, and tender. Therefore, this type of person has the greater danger of becoming hostile and gruff and abrupt and insensitive or intellectualistic. And he says, I just confess that. Uh, it's a sad and terrible thing that that's the case. Some of this type, some of these types aren't even Christians. I think you can embrace a system of theology and not even be born again. And so that's a pretty strong uh, rebuke from one of the you know most notable Calvinists in the United States, uh, from from Piper, acknowledging, yeah, this is kind of a trend. Um, and when you, Chris, when you study history, uh, you know. Calvinism hasn't had a real good track record of how they treat people that dissent. Um, it was the reformers who held to the Calvinistic views that tended to torture and kill their dissenters. Uh, Luther supported the killing of, of heretics and, and uh, uh, even those who believed in believers' baptism, Anabaptist, and, and so did Zwingli, of course. Uh, you see that within Calvin's uh, 
you know, worldview too. And a lot of people think, well, that's just the people are just acting according to the time of the day. I mean, at the time of the, 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 the times, that's just what people did back then. Well, um, if, if that's, if that's a good excuse, then, well, everybody also believed in work salvation. So is that okay too? You know, obviously bad doctrine is bad doctrine, regardless, regardless of who holds to it and bad practice is bad practice. And I would say that there were people during that day who were standing very strongly for religious liberty and for treating those who disagreed with them in love and kindness. Balthazar Hubmeyer, who predates Luther, was fighting against the ills of the Roman church, but he was also doing so by holding to uh, the libertarian free will and man's responsibility in salvation. And um, he, he would say things like, well, we shouldn't try to convince the atheists with sword and fire, but with patience and prayer. Uh, because that's what Jesus did, and because because Christ died for all people, and because God loves all people, we should show love and patience towards all people because they may be convinced. In other words, if I can possibly persuade and convince a person, why would I kill them before they have a chance to be persuaded and convinced? So um, I'm actually cutting off my opportunity to possibly win them over if I if I kill them, if I burn them at the stake. So um, in other words, I, I, please hear me. I'm not trying to say obviously Calvinists today are are that extreme. They're they're not. Um, it just tends to be because that kind of personality is drawn to that kind of deterministic systematic, they tend to be a little less emotional, uh, more intellectualistic, more gruff, I guess. And and because of that, historically, you also see that kind of playing itself out in how they've treated people who've dissented against their worldviews. And then people ask, well, why why is it when you go back throughout history – all you hear, you know, Calvinist, Calvinist, Calvinism, Calvinism's everywhere. It's all in the books. It's everywhere. It seems like everybody was a Calvinist. Well, when 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 Calvinism is killing all those who disagree with them and burning all the books of those who disagree with them, then, yeah, you're not going to have as many books that teach non-Calvinism. And, and a lot of it didn't survive. I mean, Pelagius and all his teachings, I think, were a lot less uh, Pelagian than he was even painted to be. Mm-hmm. But he was burned at the stake and any and a lot of his writings that had anything to do with this issue were burned as well and so most of what we have about pelagius is what his enemies have said about him <laughs> now I, I don't know about you but if if you only had uh existing for the next 2000 years things that your enemies say about you uh would that be a fair representation of what you actually believe and teach and uh, many of the scholars throughout christian history that have held to the views that we hold <laughs> to didn't survive and, and their works didn't survive either because um, the theological bullies, which tended to be Calvinistic, not always. Obviously, Rome wasn't Calvinistic, but they were theological bullies as well. So I'm, I'm not trying to say only the Calvinists were the mean guys. Um, it just tend the, the systematic itself tends to lend itself towards a more dogmatism, a, a, an intellectualistic rigor that people are are like Piper even admits more gruff and and mean sometimes. Yeah, it's funny. I, I was watching this four squared debate. I'm not sure if you're familiar with those. That's where they take two people for each sides of an issue and then they debate it and the audience, they weigh in before the debate and then after the debate. And then they, they judge who wins by who's changed the most minds or who has more movement for their view. But the, the debate was on, is Islam a religion of peace? And, and the affirmative side had to literally argue it is a religion of a peace, but you don't hear about it because anyone who speaks up and says it is killed by the radicals. <laughs> that's a good point. That's, 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 like, that's valid. Yeah. Like, that doesn't sound like a religion of peace to me. <laughs> so I, I think, think we might have something going on similar with the Calvinists where 
oh, it might be this selection bias where I, I, I go on all these debate uh, Facebook pages and all the Calvinist opening posts seem to be these disingenuous, inflammatory memes about everyone else is a heretic and everyone else doesn't understand the Bible. And, and that's what we're exposed to day after day, just that's the normal interactions with Calvinists. So there, there might be those moderates out there. Uh, it's hard for me to find them, except for in my personal life when I'm interacting with people one-on-one. Then, then, they tend to be, then they tend to be more rational and more willing to dialogue than these well, online and types. And that's true of both sides, Chris, to be, to be, um, to, I mean, to be fair. Um, I, I, I've, seen, I've seen guys that are really vitriolic towards Calvinists, and maybe because they've been provoked, maybe it's because they've experienced, you know, the cage stagers, and they, they just see it as, uh, as you know, just this horrible heresy that has to be, you know, stamped out. And so they attack Calvinists in that manner, but you get them in the same room together, and they calm down too. It's just the nature of the internet itself is when you separate people by a, a computer screen and a keyboard, then then everybody comes out of the woodworks and all of a sudden, you know, fairly quiet people become really um, bombastic and mean. And um, and that, that that's just a recipe for disaster in some ways. And, and I think it, it really does harm to the kingdom of seeing how, you know, people treat each other who have relatively small theological differences in, in some cases. Yeah, I, I absolutely think there's some of that where you, you don't have the personal interaction, and so you feel more free to say whatever, and you can't read people, like like tone of voice, uh, inflections right. of points, and there's a lot of opportunity for for missing how someone's saying something. Oh, uh, yeah, that's that's definitely true. It's just like even the word listen. Um, like like if we're talking right now, I might say, okay, okay, now, now listen – you know, it's really important for us to hear, but but you read the word listen, you you might hear, now listen, you know, that blah, 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 whatever it is. And so you automatically think they're they're putting you down or they're um, they're patronizing you. And really, you were just trying to say, no, wait, wait, listen, listen to what I'm trying to explain. And you were just trying to, in a nice way, explain your perspective. And I've had people where I was absolutely trying to just be real nice and cordial and then reply back and go, you know, well, you don't have to be so mean about it. Or <laughs> just like, going, wow, I, I really wasn't trying to be mean. And I read back over the post and I go, well, yeah, I guess if you put a tone on that, maybe it sounds like it's being mean, but it wasn't, it wasn't my intent. But yeah, face-to-face interactions uh, oftentimes, you know, overcome that, that burden. Yeah. Tightness comes off as uh, hostility. Right, right. All right. So you mentioned in one of your post debates with this uh, Dr. Zoidberg guy, and uh, you're talking about your Calvinists came to you, your Calvinist friends, and you said they said that they didn't at first they didn't believe that these types of Calvinists existed, and then after watching that debate and then reading perhaps Pulpit and Pen, who had a follow up on that debate that was very hostile, saying you guys are heretics, and this this is this is great that this uh, Zachary Dorietes guy uh, called you guys out on your heresy, and and we should have more fire and brimstone against uh, Armenians, which is funny because. I, who 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 does the work in you to make you saved in their system? So so preach hellfire against people who have nothing in themselves to reach God. It's funny. Mm-hmm. So uh, can you talk a little bit about how this debate uh, changed your perspective, or perhaps a perspective of moderate Calvinists? Yeah, like I said, it was more of an eye opener to some of them because it's one thing to say, you know, it's just some random internet Calvinist um, who who doesn't have a theological education or any kind of a background in theology or something like that who's railing on you and and uh, and saying really mean things. It's another thing if if it's a PhD from Southern Seminary 
um, as Theodore Zacharides is, uh, and and he's been endorsed by Tom Nettles, uh, Tom Askell, the Founders Conference guys from the Southern Baptist Convention. These are these are top leading scholars among Calvinists in the Southern Baptist Convention, and uh, he's got their endorsement on the back of a book written against my 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 views. Um, and so this guy, and that's one of the reasons I felt safe in engaging the debate with him because I really felt like uh, okay, I'm engaging with a scholar. He's a PhD from Southern with these endorsements. And, and then to show up and find a guy who is as bad, if not worse, than many of the, the cage-to-age internet Calvinists that I come across, and, and, and in person. He, what, he didn't have a computer screen even to separate him. He was perfectly fine with acting that way right out in front of everybody. And that was embarrassing, I think, for a lot of Calvinists because it's kind of like it kind of showed this is, this is pervasive not only among the uneducated and young, this is also pervasive even among some of the top scholars within their field um, and and guys that are endorsed by those top scholars. And so it made them kind of go, OK, yeah, we're, we're getting it's getting out of hand. We get we got to we got to start we got to start denouncing people who act like that and, and separating ourselves from them, because uh, historically, it's funny, historically, what has killed Calvinism are those kinds of Calvinists. Um, and it's interesting when you study the history of it. It's um, it, it has had about four different resurgences over the last 400 years, and, it, and the study of it shows that it usually comes, you know, into the mainstream and popular, and then people begin to rise up and write books and other things published against it. But then also times the the, the extreme versions, the hyper kind of guys and the mean kind of guys, begin to, like you said, take over because they're the loudest, they're the most boisterous, they're the ones that are going to talk about it the most, and so the system itself becomes known and marked by the worst of the worst within that system. And people go, oh, well, I don't have anything to do with that system, so they leave it. Um, and so guys like Zacharides and uh, Sonny Hernandez, and I will say Sonny Hernandez was a lot less vitriolic, obviously, in his replies. He, he, he seemed like he was trying to <laughs> calm things down and be more cordial. But um, what I, I don't think guys like Zacharides realize and people who act like that on the internet realize is that they're actually doing a lot more damage to their cause in uh, in Calvinism than than they realize because we have free will, uh, we're able to see that thing that they're doing and think, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with that, and we're able to freely reject it. Um, if you believe in sovereignty to the way the Calvinist does, meaning God's controlling uh, the you know all things in the deterministic way, then you really don't care how people think about what you say because hey, either God's determined for them to believe it or they haven't. I'm not too convinced about whether or not. I, I dissuade them towards my version of the truth because nobody's going to get dissuaded from truth that's really elect and that God really wants. And so they're, they're not really concerned about being um, persuasive. They're not really concerned about being attractive in any way, shape or form. Um, they're perfectly fine letting it all hang out, some of them, because, hey, if God's chosen you, it doesn't matter how mean of it you're like I am, you know, the, the, right, the right people, the elect people are going to be saved and drawn into right doctrine. So um, we might as well just give them, give them heck while we got them in front of us and tell them exactly what we feel, you know? And sometimes that's a mentality that some of them have, unfortunately. Yeah, it's funny. It's like, what, what in their theology, what good does that do? Yelling at someone who has no ability to do it. It's like me yelling at my chair, like, oh, you're a bad chair. Rah, rah, rah. 
It doesn't make very much sense. You, you find, I grew up in Calvinist churches, and I've never been a Calvinist, but I grew up in Calvinist churches, and I've been able to diagnose a lot of these sermons. And often what they say doesn't line up with how they act and, and what they preach. So they'll, they'll preach a sermon. It, it sounds like they're preaching free will. It sounds like they're preaching, uh, you know, uh, honest re- repentance. And they, they're going systematically through the Bible. And then once they get to a topical sermon, all of a sudden it's about these Calvinist concepts. And there, there's a real disconnect between what they say and what they believe. That they, they don't seem to meld those two worlds together. Well, you use analogy yelling at your chair. A, a better analogy might be because obviously they don't believe we're inanimate objects. But and I know you weren't saying that, but uh, maybe a, a better analogy that just kind of came to my mind is I've got two dogs. One of them sitting right here. Um, if if I got a bowl of my bird seed for my bird, and I got a bowl of of uh, raw meat, and I put it in front of my dog, you you know full well which which one the dog is going to go after. Because he's a dog, he's carnivorous. Yeah. He's not going to eat birdseed. Uh, birdseed would hurt his stomach, and he, she wouldn't have any desire for it. Um, but imagine me putting both of those in front of him and saying, "I want you to eat the birdseed. Eat the birdseed. You have to eat the birdseed. If you don't eat the birdseed, I'm going to punish you." And then the dog walks up and he eats the meat instead. Imagine me yelling and beating the dog after he eats the meat instead of the birdseed. That that's kind of the kind of thing they're doing here. It's like. People are acting according to their nature, how they were created. They can't do otherwise. They can't want to do otherwise. Now, now, now technically, physically speaking, yeah, the dog could eat the bird seed. So we're not saying physically the dog doesn't have the capability of biting the bird seed and chewing it. He could. He's never going to want to do that. And so that's a better representation of what the Calvinist is actually doing to non uh, to, to unbelievers out there in the world or people that they're rebuking is they're rebuking them for being uh, to acting according to the way God has ultimately created them to act. And, and that, that's, that's where it looks so ridiculous to us because you're going, okay, why, one, why are you trying to persuade them? You know, you can't persuade them to eat the bird seed. It's against their nature. You know, you, you have nothing to do with persuading them towards doing, towards doing that. And I always like to point out, I think it's interesting that the word persuasion is used uh, almost three times more often than the word predestination, but yet gets a fraction of the attention theologically. And we, we've kind of lost the doctrine of persuasion, I think, within our uh, evangelical circles, unfortunately. I, I think they inherently know that if, if they don't persuade people, Calvinism is just going to die out. <laughs> yeah, well, it, I mean, it, I think inevitably, if history does repeat itself, it, it will eventually die back out again. So that's, that's, that's funny. So uh, I would contend, and th- this is one of the reasons we're, we're having this podcast today, that if Calvinists, if they were in control of religion, say they made up maybe 90% of Christianity, they would not hesitate to label Arminians, traditionalists, anyone who disagrees with them as a heretic. And John Sanders points this out. And uh, John Sanders always gets called a heretic. I always get called a heretic. It's, it's kind of like, well... You know, you get called it nowadays, and it's just like, well, yeah, okay, you call me a heretic, now let's deal with the arguments. But he points out that uh, all Bruce Ware's arguments against John Sanders could be equally leveled against Arminians and traditionalists. And John Sanders writes this, Ware rejects, Bruce Ware, as absolutely unbiblical, the Arminian views of human freedom, enabling grace, conditional election, and unlimited atonement. And so the threat maybe to Arminians is if Calvinists were in power, they would treat a large segments of Christianity, traditional Christianity, as heretics. What are your thoughts on that? 
Well, I, I've, I've talked about the H-bomb. What I call the H-bomb heretic is, is I think it's overused within our, especially the internet world today. Um, the true meaning of the word is is more about being divisive. And one can be divisive even while holding to truth, you know, and, and, that's, and that's what's important. Divisive means you're taking something and you're trying to divide the body rather than trying to unite. You're trying to win an argument versus win a relationship. Um, you're not trying to persuade because you love the person. You're trying to just one up the person and make them look bad so that you can feel good about yourself. That's just divisiveness. And that's that's what true, I think, heresy is. Um, and so somebody like we've used the analogy before, the story before, but, you know, a man who wanted to you know help the homeless and, uh, and, and he went to his business meeting and they, they voted instead of helping the homeless, they voted to repair the roof over the nursery. And so he gets so angry and upset because we're supposed to be helping the homeless and you're, and you're pouring money into brick and mortar. And so he uses all these passages about how we should care for the homeless and, and, and not pour money into buildings and, and, and things made by man. And, and so he splits the church over this issue rather than taking a positive approach and say, hey, let's let's start a fundraiser for the homeless. Let's do this. Let's do that. It's fine that we're we're repairing our building. But let's you know, let's let's do another fundraiser to, to help you know, reach the, the least of these that, you know, see what I'm saying? You can, you can take a good cause, helping the homeless is a good cause, but you can use that to divide the body. And that's what true, I think the original language is talking about when it talks about a divisive man or a heretical man is that yes, false teaching, a false doctrine is by nature divisive because it's, it's causing people to believe something that's false. But a person that's holding on to that false doctrine actually couldn't could act in a non-divisive way, but by saying things like, "Well, I could be wrong about this, but here's what I think the Bible is saying. What do y'all think it's saying? Okay, maybe I'm wrong, but let's learn from each other." That's not being a divisive person. He's he might he might be holding to a wrong view, he might have a wrong perspective, but he's he's not trying to cast everybody outside of the kingdom and cause division within the body. He's honestly having a theological, maybe a philosophical discussion about things that are hard for us to understand. And that's one of the reasons I, I've not labeled open theists, though I disagree with open theists. Um, I've not labeled them heretics because I don't I don't think that the doctrine in and of itself is heretical. I think that the people that hold to it uh, can act heretically, just like the Calvinists can act heretically, just like traditionalists mm -hmm. can act heretically. Um, but but the doctrine itself, you might say, okay, I don't believe that that's the biblical teaching. I believe that's a false teaching. But that person is obviously with an orthodox belief in God as as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's Jesus is the Son of God, uh, the incarnate one, um, and all of the things that we would hold to as the basis of the truth of God. Um, and yet there's a philosophical, mostly philosophical distinction between how God works in his omniscience and his uh, eternal ways with a finite world. So when you're talking about um, anything that has to do with open theism or uh, the eternal now view of God, for example, or determinism in and of itself, all of those are philosophical worldviews to answer the difficulties about the claims of Scripture with regard to uh, God's eternal nature and his, his omni-everything uh, kind of attributes that are, that are typically understood that he holds to, how do you explain that? How does that work? Okay. And I think we should be a little bit more patient and loving towards one another and saying, that's hard. That's, that's difficult. That's deeper than, um, than our brains can even begin to, to grasp. And therefore we should have a little bit of cordiality and patience with each other when we disagree over certain issues. 
on on, on those questions. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so typically, when they say heretic, what what they mean is you hold something that's false, and because you hold that belief, you're going to hell. Is typically how they use it, uh, like the Arrhenius against heresies almost use, where he talks about the different Gnosticisms and things that they would count as outside the Christian faith. Yeah, and to be more specific, that some of them, to try to be more specific, we'll call it a damnable heresy. So if it's a damnable heresy, it means if you affirm this, this, this false teaching, then you are going to hell for sure. Um, if it's just a normal heresy, then you may be still saved, but you're holding to a false teaching that they are calling heretical. Um, and so, yeah, you're right in, in the sense that Bruce Ware would consider, I think, most of what Arminians teach as, quote unquote, outside of orthodoxy or heretical in the sense of it's a false teaching. I don't think Bruce Ware, based upon his friendship with David Allen and other you know, traditionalists and Arminians, I don't think he would say those are damnable heresies, which I think is important to point out. So is that, uh, is that uh, probably a relationship of convenience because Arminians hold such power in the church? Or is it because he's actually considered those views and accepts them as part of the normal uh, spectrum of Christianity? Well, there's no way to know his heart. I mean, um, you know, there's no way to know his motives or his heart. You have to trust whatever, you know, however, whatever he's saying is is truthful um and and not and not just you know giving lip service to something because it happens to have power or popularity um but you know i, I will say obviously calvinists you know in, in the southern baptist convention if we're just talking about S, the sbc you know they, they only hold about 20 to 30 percent of of popularity i guess in the surveys they're about 20 or 30 percent of people now i think that probably is growing because more and more people are being exposed to Calvinism for the first time and don't have a lot of good theological answers for the, the questions that are being posed and the answers that they're giving because they dominate the internet and they're dominating the, the bookstores. And so right now it's resurging because the lay people are kind of taking in what they're being taught. Now, um, if, if they become more like 90% or 80% popularity, yeah, there, there's a possibility that they don't even – they don't even give us the time of day. Um, they, you know, the ones in leadership barely give us the time of day as it is. I'm, I mean, traditionalists are still painted as foresight faith Arminians in almost every uh, discourse I've I've heard or public um, broadcast I've heard from notable Calvinists. They have painted um, all non-Calvinists as being the foresight faith um, Arminian. Um, I've I've rarely, if ever, heard a notable. And when I say notable, I mean you know one of the top, you know, selling kind of notable Calvinists within. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention today actually uh, actually um, restate and consider the actual traditional perspective, um, and and that that gets really frustrating because obviously they're they're not even you know willing to engage with the deep, robust theological scholars from our perspective, but instead want to caricature us all as being Wesleyan Arminians mm-hmm. or even Foresight Faith kind of Arminians, which there's a lot more to it than that, obviously. So Roger Olson, he has this uh, article, uh, Open Theism and uh, Test Case for Evangelicals. And, and Roger Olson is very famous, wrote the book Against Calvinism. And uh, in in this article that I referenced, he, he's, he talks about open theism and how open theism was treated because it was a minority 
uh, no one would go to the actual sources of the quotes. And he talks about how it was continually misrepresented by the Calvinist opponents, especially in the ETS debates. And so I see something like that perhaps happening if, if they become the majority over the, the rest of Christianity, just misrepresenting the other views, not giving them the time of the day, not interacting with their actual points, and pretending and, and telling their listeners that, they're, that the open theists or Arminians in this case, in our hypothetical, believe something other than what they actually do. Would you yeah, I mean, say it's fair? Yeah, yeah. I mean that 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 can be a tendency of anyone who's in power. I, I'm sure the traditionalists, you know, who held to more of the perspective I held to, uh, for the for many years, um, were very dismissive of Calvinistic theology, and and painted them with caricatures too. So I, I'm 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 trying to be fair, but at the same time, say you know whoever's in power is going to have the tendency to to discredit and to uh, marginalize their opponents. And so what, is, what does that look like? Well, if I can make my opponent look like they have tinfoil on their head and they're just goofy, weird, and nobody really want, wants to listen to them and they're just, you know, they're just stupid and nobody loves them and that kind of a thing, then, then, I, can, then I can dismiss them without actually dealing with their, their arguments. And what the problem with that is, is that if you do that to a group of people long enough, then you don't have anybody who's educated in how to rebut their worldview. And that's what's happened, I think, over the last 20, 30 years is that nobody's been rebutting Calvinism. They've just been dismissing them and treating them like, you know, redheaded stepchildren, so to speak, and um, ignoring them. And when you ignore a system for so long, then people lose their understanding of, of correct theology on those issues. And then guess what happens? They rise up in popularity because nobody knows any of the arguments for uh, for and against the the issues, and so that, I think that's what you're seeing today. And so what I what I would say to to Calvinists is, when they become more in power, which it looks like they're becoming more and more predominant in in the world, the the and I'm not trying to give them advice on how to stay in power, but <laughs> the, the world or America. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I guess the United States, yeah, really, just more like in the United States, but in the SBC in particular, um, is that once they get control. The best thing they, they could possibly do, it seems like, to maintain that is to continue to engage with the non-Calvinists in a, in a robust theological way, because if they continue to ignore us and paint us in really uh, straw men kind of ways, then the next generation is going to see through that, and guess what's going to happen? They're going to get you know, pushed back out, and people are going to begin, you know, because teenagers by, you know, teenagers or 20-year-olds by nature are contrarians. And so whatever their parents are teaching and holding to, they're going to be they're going to be questioning it and and, and looking back and saying, what, what, what's the other alternatives out there? And if they don't take the time to really engage with actual traditionalist perspectives, then it's just a matter of time before that tide will go back the other direction, as far as I can tell. Yeah. So speaking of uh, people who poison the well, let's talk quick about Matt Slick. I don't know if you've had any interactions with Matt Slick ever. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've uh, had a couple, a couple of online debates with Matt. Yeah, so Matt Slick has, well, I'll have to look up those debates. That sounds pretty interesting. Matt Slick had a debate with Will Duffy, and he, the whole time he tries to poison the well. And he mentions Mormonism maybe 10 to 15 times. It's kind of funny. But there's a there's this uh, section that I would like you to respond to, because Will Duffy didn't have an answer for Matt Slick off the top of his head. Matt Slick asks Will Duffy about Mark IV. He says uh, that uh, Jesus or God is just tricking people to not believe. So 
what's actually going on here? Maybe you could answer that for Will Duffy before we leave here. Yeah, it, well, it's interesting that you bring that up because Matt brought that up in our discussion as well. Um, and this is also a parallel passage out of Matthew 13, where it talks about um, uh, Jesus speaking in parables. And the disciples come to him and say, Jesus, why are you keep talking in parables? Why don't you just tell us plainly? And, uh, and, he's, and he pretty much explains to them, well, I speak to parables lest they, those on the outside, see, hear, understand, and turn, and God would heal them. Um, in other words, he's using parabolic language to keep the, the Pharisees, the leaders, the religious leaders of the day, outside, and to keep them from understanding who he is, lest they believe, and lest they uh, are healed. And so what Matt has done, erroneously, I think, is said, well, here's proof of Calvinism, because here's proof of God, through Jesus, trying to prevent people from becoming a Christian. And so that proves Calvinism. Well, actually, it disproves Calvinism, because, <laughs> because if, if it's true that they're born corpse-like dead, like the Calvinists believe of the T of total inability, then there's no reason to use parabolic language to keep them from faith. And so it's like putting a, a blindfold over a corpse. Like, why would you put a blindfold over a corpse lest they can see? Why would you use parabolic language for a totally disabled person lest they believe? It doesn't make a lot of sense. What makes a lot more sense is if people understand the context of what's happening in Jesus's day is that he is blinding the self-righteous Jew in their self-righteous rebellion so as to accomplish the crucifixion, which Paul actually explains in several other passages. And he's cutting off Israel in their unbelief. He's giving them a spirit of stupor, as it says, blinding them, um, speaking to them in parabolic language, all of these things to keep them in the dark. And a lot of people think, well, that's because they're reprobates. They're, they're rejected. <laughs> they're, they're non-elect. The God doesn't really love them. No, that's Romans 9 through 11 explains this real explicitly that the same ones who stumble in Israel, the same the ones who are stumbling over the stumbling stone are the same ones he says haven't stumbled beyond recovery in, in chapter 11, verse 11. The same ones who are hardened in chapter 9 um, because of their callous rebellion, not because God has predestined for them to do that, not because of a nature inborn by you know, inherited from Adam, but because of their own free choices, they have grown stubborn and calloused, and now they're cut off in hardened rebellion. Um, he, he says, I hope that my ministry to the, the Gentiles will provoke them to envy so that they too may be saved. In other words, he hadn't given up hope on them. Yeah. He actually hopes that they will be provoked and come back. Um, so the same ones who are hardened are, could possibly be saved, according to Paul. The same ones who are cut off, he says in chapter 11, he hopes that it'll be grafted back in if they leave their unbelief because they were cut off for their unbelief. They weren't cut off before the foundation of the world. They weren't cut off for no apparent reason. They were cut off because of their rebellion and their unbelief. And Paul actually holds out hope that they will leave their unbelief and be grafted back in. That doesn't sound like somebody who was um, rejected before the foundation of the world. And in that context, it actually says, you know, he's praying for the salvation of all the Jews. He, he the end of the, the chapter ten, verse twenty-one, it says he's held out his hands to them all day long. Uh, we read in other passages where he longs to gather them like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but they're unwilling. Um, we see all of this throughout the scripture of God's desire and longing for the nation of Israel. And so, what I've related it to in my book, chapter six, is much like when a when a when parents have a maybe a 19-year-old still living in the basement and he's involved in drugs and alcohol and he's just rebellious, one of the most gracious and kind and loving things that parent could do is to cut that child off, not to enable them in their sin, and to say, if you're not going to live according to the rules of this house, you can't live here anymore. 
And that from the outside might look like somebody's being unloving because you're cutting off your child. You're not, you're not providing for them anymore, but actually it's a very gracious and loving thing to do because you're helping them to realize they can't live like this anymore. And you're hoping that they'll reach the pigsty of their life, so to speak, and that they'll come home and be reconciled. So the parents aren't doing this because they don't love the child. They're actually doing it out of love, which interestingly enough is exactly what Paul concludes in chapter 11, verse 32, when he says, God has cut them all off into disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. So it's not, he's not cutting them off because he doesn't love them. He's cutting off for the exact opposite reason. He's cutting them off because he does love them, which is also what we see in the Corinthian church when you got that rebellious um, uh, church member who continues to rebel and he says, well, warn them once, warn them twice, and then cut them off and have nothing to do with them so that you may save their soul. Well, how do you save a soul by cutting somebody off? Well, again, you're hoping to provoke them. You're hoping to help them to realize they can't continue in this rebellion. It's, a, it's an act of discipline, and everybody knows that people who are disciplined are loved. They're, it's not because he doesn't love them or doesn't want them. It's actually an act of love. And so once I understood that, it's the reason I left Calvinism is because I understood that Romans 9 through 11 was a widening of God's mercy, not a narrowing of it. Mm-hmm. it. It was a widening of his love and his 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 love for Israel and his desire for all of them to be saved. And in, in cutting them off, he's actually showing how much he really loves Israel and wants them to be provoked to envy and even uh, be grafted back in and uh, in in their, you know, from their unbelief. Yeah, and, and everyone should go look at your debate with uh, James White about Romans 9. And then especially after you watch that debate, watch the follow-up videos where you go through it point by point and their objections, their criticisms of you in that debate. So I think your follow-up might even be better than the actual debate itself. But well, that's, that's pretty oh, yeah. typical. I think, uh, you know, follow-ups are usually better because you always get to go back and say exactly what you meant to say in the first time. And being my first public debate, um, there's a lot of things I wish I'd have said that I didn't. But uh, yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that because I do think there was uh, some, you know, mischaracterizations after the debate that were obviously untrue. And I just go through and show for the record, you know, my interactions with Dr. White and his people uh, prior to the debate to show that um, I was, you know, very much uh, clear about what I was going to be debating and how I would be debating it. And, uh, and they, they acted as if I uh, kind of did a bait and switch or something and that I wasn't doing what I agreed upon. And that, that gets to attacking my character as mm-hmm. if I, I uh, was misrepresenting myself in some way before the debate. And so I, had, I, I wanted to clarify those things in writing and for people to see for themselves uh, for obvious reasons. And he still hasn't retracted that. That's unfortunate. I'm, I'm surprised that. Um, Are you? <laughs> well, well uh, I'm surprised that Christians act that way. I mean, I honestly am. I, when, when I've been called on things, and James White called me on a, a couple of things where I had an interaction with Brian Abishano, and I'd played, I, I sent, because it was sent to me as a timestamp, I sent him just a timestamp, Brian Abishano, just a timestamp of this, you know, two hour long podcast that he did. And so Brian Abishano and I just dealt with that little timestamp. And, and James White, wrote us and said, well, there was so much more that I actually covered before that, that would give you more clarity had you listened to it. And so my very next program was to come on and I even played the I'm sorry song. And I said, you know, I didn't see this and I apologize. And it's only fair for him to be fully represented. And so Brian Abishano came back on and we talked about those things. Um, I've never seen him or any of the guys that you mentioned earlier and kind of go back and retract and say, yeah, okay, I've overstepped here. Maybe I should have put it this way. Um, 
you know, and that's more, that's not about Calvinism, Arminianism. That's just about Christianity. Um, are, are you going to be honest with your mistakes and be able to own up to it? Or are you just going to double down and, um, and get meaner and nastier? That, that's, that's more of a sign of a fruit of the spirit. That has nothing to do with sociological differences as far as I'm concerned. That's, 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 that's really more of a sign of where your heart is. And that, mm-hmm. that's really unfortunate when people act that way. So, so in Mark 4, uh, one of your podcasts, you point out that it's the fallacy of composition. And you don't use the fallacy of composition language, but to say that if God lies to someone at this point in time, uh, pretending that he always lies to people all the time, forever, or just blinds them from the truth forever, that, that that's a fallacy. It, it's it's a specific to a time and place. And Matt right. Slick, uh, Matt Slick is big on fallacies, describing them, a fallacy of composition when I interacted with him for this debate that we were talking about right now between him and Will Duffy. I was there and talked to him, and he's able to describe this fallacy of composition, but that he falls prey to it. Because yeah. God blinded someone's eyes at this point in time, that means he does it always, forever, it applies right. now. Yeah, well, and the analogy I use is like a, a police sting operation. Um, the police may use, they're not causing criminals to be criminals. They're using people who are already criminals and already set in their criminal behavior and setting up a, like a drug sting operation. And uh, so these guys going undercover. In other words, he's blinding them from the truth of who he is. Um, and an undercover cop is manipulating the circumstances and situations to make sure they sell drugs on Thursday at one o'clock in the warehouse. Well, uh, imagine us watching that take place and we, we, we read about it and we see that these these cops put, pulled together and orchestrated this drug deal at one o'clock on Thursday in the warehouse. And we conclude from that, oh, well, that must mean that police officers plan and organize every single drug deal all the time. <laughs> That would be obviously ridiculous, but that's exactly what they've done with things like the crucifixion is that Mm. because God used already criminal minds, already rebellious hearts like the Jewish uh, people of that day, because he used them in the rebellion to orchestrate the the greatest gift of all, our redemption, that somehow God is manipulating and causing every single sin at all times. And that's just a non sequitur. And it's like you said, the fallacy of composition, but it's, 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 Sometimes you're blind to that because of the tradition of your own systematic. And so you'll do, and you'll, in other words, you'll latch onto the fallacies that help you and you'll ignore the fallacies that hurt you in order to protect a system. And so sometimes they're just blind to those fallacies that they're employing to protect their own system. And it's not until you objectively back away and you put down your systematic, you take off the lenses, so to speak, and you begin to go, okay, Mm -hmm. where, where am I allowing fallacies to step in into my, in defense of my system? And what, what could this text actually mean out of Mark 4 or Matthew 13? What, what could Jesus be striving to accomplish? Could it be, as Paul explains, that these things are mysteries that were kept as a mystery? Otherwise, they would, have not, they would, have, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, as 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, 6 and following says. In other words, God knows that if they knew he was the Messiah, they wouldn't crucify him. And so it makes mm-hmm. sense for him to use parabolic language to keep his identity in the dark. And, and that's not a, a sign that God uh, doesn't want them to be saved. It's certainly not an indication that God always blinds people and, and uses these kinds of, of um, uh, 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 circumstances to bring about a particular um, religion or, or good uh, uh, redemptive purpose. 
And, and so I always try to point to Calvin and say, back away from the system, put down the system for a second. And if you put down the system, you can see what God may be trying to accomplish in his, his redemptive purposes. Yeah, you absolutely see that in the teachings of Jesus. He doesn't preach about who he is. He preaches about the coming kingdom of God. And every time people try to ask him who he is, he's, he gets very cryptic. And then he tells them not to tell anyone. And yep. so it's, it's this, yeah. it's this purpose, con- purposeful concealing of what's going on there. But I'd like to thank you for coming on this program. I'd like to give you a minute to plug your book, plug your uh, podcast, and uh, any closing thoughts. Sure. Yeah, you can find more information at Soteriology101.com. Um, there's links to my book called The Potter's Promise there as well. It's also found on uh, in Kindle as well as on Amazon. Um, and it, it really goes through more of a, a verse-by-verse analysis of Romans chapter 9, especially, but it also gets into chapter John chapter 6 and Ephesians chapter 1, which are uh, often proof text for uh, Calvinistic sociology. And, and it goes through a little bit of my journey uh, in and out of Calvinism, you know, what, what what arguments kind of finally opened my eyes to leave behind a system that I, I really loved for, you know, over a decade of my life. And uh, being an avid Calvinist for so long um, kind of gave me a unique perspective, especially as a theology professor, to kind of go, you know, here's here's where the shift took place for me. And it helps people to see that shift. And so um, I also have a podcast uh, called Sociology 101 and a YouTube page with uh, that those podcasts recorded uh, with with a green screen, much like yours. Yeah. Um, I was complimenting your green screen earlier because I've got one myself that I use for my uh, my YouTube uh, pro- my ca- uh, podcast. So um, I appreciate you having me on. It was a, a great discussion. Yeah, I think it was actually really well. And uh, I'm sure we, we could find a lot more to talk about. I know you were Absolutely. worried. You're like, we, do, we might not have, an, or that might be too little of uh, stuff to talk about in the time frame. I'm like, we'll yeah, have enough time. Be, yeah, there'll be enough. There'll be plenty. We got enough stuff. (laughs) Always more. Well, I thank you so much for coming on. If anyone has any questions or comments on this podcast, send that to God is open questions at gmail.com or start a thread on our Facebook group or on our YouTube channel. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 